Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Rali Partinen, an award-winning writer and science communicator based in Finland. Raleigh is the author of a number of books, including Finland After Oil, Climate Gamble, How Anti-Nuclear Activism is Endangering Our Future, Dark Horse, Nuclear Power, and, and Climate Change. Raleigh is also the co-founder of the Eco-Modernist Society of Finland and a non-profit think tank called Think Atom. Raleigh, there's a, a certain theme I'm seeing kind of weaving its way through your work, Um <laughs> welcome welcome to decouple your this theme is is welcome on this podcast oh yeah thanks thanks for having me <laughs> okay Raleigh so uh you know we're bringing you on to talk about uh, a recent report that uh you uh, co-authored um with Ollie anyway we'll, we'll credit Ollie as well in a second here yes Ollie Sopella wonderful Ollie Sopella we, we yes. got our, each got our copy here <laughs> um But first, uh, my friend, as you know, um, we like the self-introductions here. So I, I got uh, kind of your bibliography out of the way. But uh, tell us a little about yourself. Um, I understand um, we're recording early uh, my time because you have some uh, capoeira uh, to go teach in an hour and a half or something. But just, yeah, tell us a little something about yourself. Make yourself relatable to uh, to the decouple audience. Oh, God, I hate self-introductions. I'm really bad at them. But but yeah, I'd, I've been doing capoeira for 20 years. I teach a local club in, in a city nearby. I have three kids. Uh, the youngest is seven. She's a princess. Then mm, the middle one is 12 and the oldest one is 15. So quite a spread. Uh, interesting life. The uh, oldest one also goes to capoeira with me, which is nice nice as well we um, you know we are you know decouple podcast has grown into decouple media we have a whole variety of um products now in the in the decouple media line but one of them is uh backflips for nuclear um which is uh or decouple acrobatics which oh. is headed up by by dylan moon um he did some pretty awesome moves uh in berlin yeah um, i saw those at, at the big rally so you know i'm i'm uh, we also have i think it's Ed, eduardo quack uh I hope I'm getting his name right. Um, who was uh, the break dancer featured in the um, in the Net Zero Needs Nuclear? Uh, what do you call it? A flash mob dance thing yeah. in Glasgow. So you know, wondering if I can recruit you onto uh, onto some kind of decouple acrobatics uh, with the couple handstands for for nuclear. Beautiful. All right. <laughs> All right. You've been recruited, um, and the decouple team grows. Okay. All that aside. Um, Let's uh, let's jump in a little bit. Um, again, this uh, one billion tons report. Um, I I met you, Raleigh. Uh, had the pleasure of meeting you in person um, in Glasgow, um, and we got to do like a mini interview about it. But it was uh, I think you had to like race to the airport a few minutes uh, after we recorded, or I, you know, it's all a blur. It was uh, I had to race quite... to the bed to get some sleep before yes. racing to the airport. <laughs> it was it was quite a sort of like sleep deprived uh, week we had there. So it's a bit of a blur. Um, but, um, you know, the German six, uh, the first three plants are scheduled to come offline. Is it a New Year's Eve or is that right? Well, somewhere around there. Yeah. At the end of the year. They they had to get the first three off by the end of 2021 for some reason. So I think it's by by uh, by New Year's Eve. And then the, the next three are yeah. coming off by the by the end of 2022. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my my understanding. Okay. okay. And this was also the context of. Uh, the uh the james hansen uh interview on decouple where uh endenberg gates organized by uh stand up for nuclear and fota for climate um and uh so it's big in the news thought it was quite topical um we're in december and within the next three weeks uh you know a bunch of german nuclear comes offline so let's talk about the consequences of that but first let's kind of situate things a little bit historically we have done um an episode God, I think it was episode number two with uh, Matisse Beckers uh, framing the energy venda a little bit. Um, but let's uh, let's reframe it, you know, for those listeners that are jumping in 104 episodes later. Um, <laughs> Good work. <laughs> uh, yeah, just just uh, give us a little bit of the context again for the uh, for the energy venda, um, you know, its its goals and, and how it's going. Well, I mean, it's it started about. At the turn of the century, really, uh, with with the negotiations uh, in in government, and then of course they all uh, also had to negotiate with the industry about the clo uh, closure of the nuclear power plants and and going um, all in on on renewable 
energy. Uh, then, well, they 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 set some of the most progressive renewable energy legislation in 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 Germany at at the time on a global scene. Uh, then about 10 years later, Merkel um, had the power and, and she actually uh, signed a new law or act that, that the nuclear plants could operate longer, longer than the... And I mean, Merkel's, a, Merkel's a, a quantum chemist, I believe, like she's... she's yeah, she's pretty well educated on these yeah. topics. And, and she was citing the climate, like emission reductions as, as one of the main of arguments for keeping the nuclear power plants open uh, and it was this was around the time 2010 turn to 2011 something like that and she had the legislation and, and basically the ink didn't have tried to time to dry uh, when a certain tsunami and earthquake happened on the other side of the globe and uh, that that uh, caused the political situation to germ in germany to go in a in a way, but they had obviously there's always elections coming, <laughs> and the Greens were Greens were having having some good headway in the coming elections, and obviously they were using this um, as as one of their campaigning tools. So Merkel fe at least felt I'm not sure what would have been the actual reality had she not done it, but she felt that she had to kind of fight back, and and uh, a couple of days after the accident ordered some of the units to be closed and and cancelled the whole kind of cancelling of the <laughs> atom ausstieg as and, i mean say. outside of like outside of japan where it's a little more understandable that they kind of scram their whole fleet and and have kept things offline for a while i mean understandable but you know <laughs> they've also um had a lot of extra fossil fuel bills and been burning right. a ridiculous amount of coal and gas but i mean but you know germany's a long ways away um not really any active tsunami zones um i guess a, a pretty um sterling record of, of nuclear safety like in terms of your you've been in this field for a while you've you've been in germany studying german uh germany as, as part of your your work as an energy analyst like what what do you think it is about the german psyche that that you know led to this kind of a reaction like i think really the only i mean there's again lots of countries that said hey we're going to take a little pause on nuclear like china um you know big safety reevaluations around the world but you know it was germany and japan that had this kind of reaction so what what is it about germany and and the german people and the german psyche that you think you know, led led to that pretty extraordinary policy decision. Well, that is a good question, and and it would be a good thing to study for an army of psychologists and and perhaps even psychotherapists. Uh, the, I mean, I guess it starts well. The German culture and and the nature of German people they are quite romantic, and and nature kind of uh, even though they are brilliant engineers. And scientists, they also have this other side of being very kind of nature and, and love homeopathy and, and stuff like that, which is like completely weird for me. Uh, but here you are. So they have that as a backdrop. And then uh, after Second World War, during the Cold War, they were in the kind of very literally in the front line of getting the nukes, basically, if something went wrong. You had East Germany, West Germany, uh, and all, all that stuff. So I think that has been for a generation of, of Germans a very kind of traumatizing and, and scary time. Uh, and then it started to kind of feed on itself. And, and in the last decades, the kind of whole German society has become through and through kind of anti-nuclear. You teach it in the kindergarten. You teach it at school. You have many institutions and uh, research institutes and 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 whatever who repeat this message that nuclear is bad, nuclear is dangerous, nuclear is this, this and that. Uh, so you kind of get marinated <laughs> in it, in the message your whole life. And if you, even if you disagree, we know that there's a lot of German people who who think nuclear is quite fine and and okay. But if the whole society is saying that it's bad, it's a huge, it takes a lot of courage or you have to be dumb in some way <laughs> to kind of come out and say that, no, I actually like nuclear and, and we should do it and, and build more of it because you risk 
your whole career, your whole social life, uh, at least. And even if you wouldn't, there is a perception that you will. So it's much easier to just stay silent. So the only ones who are actually saying anything are the people who are anti-nuclear by profession or by, by desire. There's an interesting phenomena in medicine, um, you know, my field where uh, pharmaceutical representatives will come by your office and, you know, bring you some token gifts. Um, and so there's there's some research into, you know, are we influenced by that or not? And when you talk to doctors, they'll say, oh, I'm not influenced by it, but my <laughs> colleagues for sure. Right. And I, I've heard similar things um, in terms of when uh, Germans are asked about nuclear energy. Um, generally speaking, they say, oh, like, I'm, I'm not against it, but they overestimate how against it their neighbors are, the rest of the community. Yeah. And I think that has, as you were saying, a real impact of um, of kind of maybe censorship is the wrong word, self-censorship or, you know, just misperception. I think yeah. like polling as a phenomenon is is just such an important way to get a sense of uh, of what the, you know, what the popular um, opinions are. And and without that mirror shining back on you, it's it, it can you know, maybe distort your perception of, of, you know, where your politics fit or where your ideas fit. Right. I have heard that there have been some polls um, recently that did show that a majority of Germans are at least, you know, open to the idea of, of keeping the German remaining reactors open in the context of climate change. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's what I've been seeing. Obviously, there must be many kinds of polls and, and you always need to check out how the questions are formulated. Because that, from that you get very different answers. But yeah, I've seen those polls as well, especially if you give the context of of climate, the, the nuclear issue, then the response is quite different than when you compare, would you like to have solar electricity or nuclear electricity? Like, yeah, well, if it works and if it's cheap, then solar. But if you don't give any context, um, yeah. Interesting. It was, yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, um, you know, participating at the, uh, at the rally in, uh, in Berlin, like it was staggering. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, dressed in my scrubs, um, you know, big friendly face. I'm pretty extroverted, pretty able to just start random conversations with people. Um, and I was even juggling, like I was just putting, uh, like pulling out all the stops, trying to right. you know, warm up some some German bystanders and passersby to just even have a conversation, right? So I was I was like juggling and walking and talking at the same time, trying to start a conversation with some people, you know. And my my success rate was, I think, you know, zero for thirty in terms of like conversations with Germans. And then I had you know a bunch of success with tourists that were passing by the Brandenburg gates. But it was it was wild, you know, wow. just like how closed off. That was, and I know that again is a very imperfect um, polling methodology, but right. it was, you know, it's just nine. You know, could would, you know? <laughs> would you talk about anything else related to energy? Nine. <laughs> you know, just, it was pretty wild. It was pretty yeah. wild. And I think if if you want to take the kind of anti-nuclear organizations and professionals into this, I think that they know this, uh, and especially with like uh, famous people or politicians or, or people that a lot of people know uh i think that if they would some of them would come out and and say something positive about, about nuclear these people would attack them and make them kind of pay uh, uh, and you see it on twitter twitter all the time so this kind of increases the the cost of coming out uh, uh, even further and yeah, it's a cynical view, but I think it's also no, correct. I, I think it's entirely, <laughs> entirely accurate. And it's kind of um, the, the counter impact of what I'll call the Isabel Bemicki effect. Right. Um, right. Where someone who's um, an influencer and, and has a certain degree of fame and charisma comes out like this and is a sole voice. And you know, maybe people think she's kind of crazy or an, or an oddball, um, but people are curious. And now... You know, in the aftermath of the uh, the clean energy rally in in uh, California, you know, there's this kind of domino effect of influencers and very famous people coming out pro nuclear, and that includes uh, Elon Musk himself. Uh -huh. I mean, it was a a little bit of a uh, there was a bit of a, uh, a hedge there, but you know, saying we shouldn't close nuclear plants unless there's some overwhelming risks from things. Uh, and then his, uh, I guess his ex Grimes and a number of other you know noteworthy people are really coming out of the woodwork now to to, I guess, um, yeah, in, in endorse at least keeping nuclear open. So that's that's interesting. And and I do feel like we're in this historic moment where, um, 
the dam is breaking. Like the, the you know the, the anti nuclear uh, establishment has been able to kind of keep pro nuclear voices out or make it socially costly, as you're saying, for people to to speak their mind and their opinions. And that is starting to change. Maybe not fast enough to uh, to save these these German sick. So let's talk a little bit about um, the, this this context here. So. Um, Germany historically had much more nuclear around. Um, tell us, tell us about sort of what there was, what there is now, and and how what there is now compares to the other sources on the grid. Oh dear, do I even remember? I think it, they had something like seventeen reactors. Uh, okay, I haven't checked that in a while. It's quiz time, Raleigh. It's quiz time. <laughs> I just read it, so uh, yeah, I mean, it was I mean, twenty-five. Uh, yeah, the report doesn't doesn't mention. Right, not the numbers, but the I guess. Yeah, it's, um, it's hilarious. So, so I, I one, one of the like critiques, one of the critiques <laughs> I get a lot on the podcast is I like answer the question that I'm asking for my guests because I'm just, <laughs> you know, so nerdy and maybe want right. to show off that I, you know, I've, I've done my research. But um, what I was reading in the report was it was like it used to be 25% of, of all German electricity was was nuclear, right? And, yeah. and that's dropped significantly. Well, obviously, if you take uh, about two thirds of it and uh, offline, then yeah, much less. Uh, so something you know, the report was saying it's the you know the remaining nuclear. If we take it off the grid, is the equivalent of I guess in terms of yearly production of taking all of German solar offline or or fifteen thousand wind turbines. Yeah, something like that. It's it's about eight gigawatts, if I remember right. Um, that's about the size of the Finnish electricity grid, <laughs> like <Wow>. the whole. <laughs> Just yeah, it's and it's it's like, man. We have a lot of discussion here in Finland about climate, and we have one of the most progressive climate legislation. Like, we have a target of becoming carbon neutral by 2035. Wow. And, and, and obviously, there's a lot of discussion about sacrifices and investments and, and how should we do it and, and stuff like that. I actually just got a report out last week uh, where I studied the uh, opportunity to do it with mostly nuclear. Um, I'm sorry, it's only in Finnish, but I, I will see if I can get a translation, <laughs> translated version for you to look at. But but the thing is that yeah, all of this discussion, all of this kind of work and political stuff, and then we have a neighboring country who just decides to flush it down the toilet, kind of like yeah, none of our stuff kind of matters if you do this. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, you know, that's that's a certainly a potent example. But um, the, the other one that came up recently um, in the context of Germany's efforts to um, defund fossil fuel development in in very poor countries while continuing to burn lots of coal, um, uh, you know, our, our backflips for nuclear, um, you know, team lead as well as uh, one of our analysts here at Decouple, um, the jack of all trades, Mr. Dylan Moon, just did a quick calculation of. Um, the terawatt hours produced by the German six and comparing that to total electricity production, like as you were saying, it's kind of equal to Finland, but it was equal to, you know, in terms of c countries and energy poverty, I think it was Nigeria plus Kenya plus Ghana plus another African country. So it's just the the consequence of taking this clean energy offline, not only does it set back Germany, but it's just when you compare it to other smaller countries in the world. I mean, Germany is, I think, the sixth, sixth largest economy in the world or something. I mean, it's just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big one. It's it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. So you know, in terms of um, German uh, progress on emissions to date, you know, how are how are things going um, with the energy vendor? Um, you know, I, my understanding of of renewables and, and the deployment of wind and solar in, in Germany is that like there have been emissions reductions. They've been pretty modest. And and in terms of how I understand that, it, it's that these particular resources, because they're intermittent, function as fossil fuel sparers, but not replacements for fossil fuels so anyway way too much context yet again from my interview <laughs> style but um <laughs> but how is the energy vendor going uh in terms of uh in terms of the the uh emissions reduction um goals well there's a couple ways you can look at it um one is the context and, and the time scale that you choose uh which is very important because for example if we compare it to 1990 levels like what has happened then you have the one-time event of the reunification of Germany and the subsequent closing down of much of their kind of polluting, inefficient power plants and, and industry in the East German. So that reduced 
like uh, in a in a four year period, like over a hundred million tons of uh, CO two emissions. So that's a big big impact that has nothing to do with the energy event because it happened before mm. and it's a one time event. Then, sure. if you also calculate uh, or say the, the year twenty twenty, which was last year. So there was this, like, I think it was about 70 million tons uh, reduction, but that was largely due to COVID. So that's also a one-time event, and uh, probably that's going to bounce back uh, if and when the economy starts humming again and, and people start to move and, and do stuff. So even though German has reduced emissions roughly at the same pace as European Union nations together, there are these events and you would actually imagine that they would do a little bit better because they've been pouring hundreds and hundreds of billions of euros into their project while many of the other european nations have not kind of made this kind of similar stuff and and you could i, I once did a quick calculation what what would happen uh would germany be able to meet its 2020 uh, emissions reductions targets. Well, they were able to hit them, but that was because COVID. But if they had closed down uh, coal plants instead of nuclear, then somewhat ironically, they would have met those targets. So the very existence of Energiewende as a nuclear closer program is also the cause of the other part of energy vendor, which is the emissions reductions program to fail. So it's it's like the 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 famous snake eating its own tail or something like that. It's it's kind of written in a way that it will cause itself to fail. This is a bit yeah, that's energy vendor for you. Now, you know, we talk a lot, I think, in, in energy transition circles about, you know, what's the low hanging fruit of, of decarbonization. Um, and so in terms of, you know, what, what's easier to do? And I think generally there's a consensus that electricity is kind of one of the easiest things to do, certainly in comparison to things like transportation and then more difficult things like, I guess, the holy grail of at scale decarbonizing things like fertilizer production or cement and steel. But uh, in terms of progress so far, um, does Germany follow that story? Have they've kind of done the easy stuff? It's about to get a lot harder. Or what's your what's your thinking? <laughs> well, on that? I wish that they would have done even the easy stuff, but <laughs> right. but yeah, that's that's the that's the, the easy thing. Stuff being just, just <clears throat> not shutting down your nuclear plants. We have multiple ways of making relatively cheap, clean, low carbon electricity, and so from that follows that yeah, decarbonizing electricity, replacing coal and gas and, and oil burners with these things is, is a kind of easy hanging fruit. Then there is this kind of winter, summer variation and how to make it economically feasible to have the extra capacity and all, all that kind of stuff that, that hits the last, last 20 or 10% of the, but, but anyway, most of the electricity grid, grid is easy to decarbonize. But then you get into the, these things that like fossil fuels in, in transportation or industrial processes, if you want to have Proce process steam at 500 degrees Celsius or 1000 degrees Celsius. There is not that many ways that you can do that locally in a reliable and affordable ways. Burning natural gas is one of those, one of the kind of most obvious and easiest and, and, and stuff like that. But carbon emissions, we were supposed to decarbonize. So, so okay, then you have electricity that you can turn into heat but that's not really cost effective because losses uh electricity is more valuable than heat and all this kind of stuff so these things are really hard to decarbonize and can be much more expensive than just decarbonizing the electricity grid which is like a third or a quarter of the overall emissions depending if you calculate only energy or or everything uh, or transportation fuels. I mean, liquid liquid fuels are very, very useful. That's why we use them so much uh, for transportation. They're easy to store, easy to transfer, easy to uh, have a, a high energy density, easy to burn. So there's a reason we use them. Replacing them with something else is hard. 
I mean, yeah, I'm all for EVs, like electric vehicles, especially for personal transportation, but they also have their bottlenecks like minerals, materials, production capacity for batteries and components and, and all that kind of stuff that's going to take time. So yeah, electricity is easy and, and heat and, and it, fuels is, is of, really hard. I imagine like I had some friends that did a bike, uh, a bike tour in Germany and, and they were just like, I mean, you see it, there's, there's energy infrastructure everywhere in terms of, you know, uh, solar farms and, and wind turbines and things. And, um, obviously, you start to bump into, I think the most recent um, coalition government talks uh, mentioned that, you know, part of the plan to sort of speed up the energy venda was to dedicate 2% of German land area to renewable energy production. It seems like, you know, the, I just had Hannah Bloomfield on who's a, a energy meteorologist. So her her whole field is looking at historic meteorological data and future predictions and helping renewable energy projects on where's the best siting, for instance. So I imagine in Germany, they've, they've you know, just like we talk about hydroelectricity being a bit limited now because we've picked the best sites. Um, I think with wind and solar, it's a little less clear cut, but certainly, you know, the best sites from the perspective of having, you know, your, your uh, mountain uh, ridges or whatever, uh, but also the easiest sites in terms of the not in my backyard people. Um, is, is Germany starting to run into some issues there in terms of people not wanting infrastructure close to them or the transmission lines? What's what's your read there? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> very short answer. And, and something that varies about uh, worries me about this is is the thing is that when you have these scenarios and roadmaps for all renewables uh, the future it pretty much never uh, discusses or or takes this argument into account that you might run into deployment problems like when you start to deploy infrastructure at very large scale things start to happen people suddenly don't want another windmill or another wind uh, solar park or transmission line next to their house and they start to push back and the thing is that if you don't take these into account you just imagine or your model imagines that it can deploy and deploy and deploy and, and there is no problems and all of those capacities are at near perfect sites then it's i i think to, to put it in a, in a very nice way is that that's a very risky assumption to make because we are already seeing seeing more and more opposition for for this kind of um i guess you call it energy sprawl where where it comes into your back backyard a little bit too much i mean wind power usually is, is fine for people especially if it's somewhere else i mean and and that goes for for most uh energy infrastructure obviously you can have and should have probably solar panels on your rooftops because there is no alternative cost for having a roof made of solar panels or something else. But when you start uh, cutting down forests or, or taking land into that use, then you have an alternative cost that you should consider. And, and you have, it's an ecological issue and it's a social issue. For people, I wouldn't want to have my kind of daily walking route destroyed and, and made into completely something else. That, you know, there was a, it's been making the rounds on Twitter recently, but uh, an Australian photographer um, who was quite supportive of uh, renewable energy, um, I think he took some really amazing photos of, um, you know, the trucks moving the huge wind turbine blades. Oh, yeah. And I think he took them with a drone. Like, it's, it's really kind of crazy like watching a truck with like a 70 meter blade making a turn at an intersection so the these these photos he took early on kind of went viral so the company's like hey come and like you know photograph us building the project it's super cool and he did and and he started to really see that the environmental impacts are pretty big because if you're transporting a 70 meter blade a wind turbine blade and you're having to move through kind of some mountainous terrain like the roads you need to cut to, to move the, the towers and the blades to the installation site, they need to be really wide, like 50 meter wide roads in some places, right? So anyway, he started photographing, um, you know, this site and then several other sites. And it really kind of, I think it just made him aware of, of the energy impacts because I think the way that the, the marketing for wind and solar has gone, there's really a perception that they kind of fit into a pristine landscape. Um, but when you see those aerial photos of like the kind of roads that need to be built to, to bring the gear to each of the sites, it's it's uh, it's pretty impressive. But the other thing you mentioned is kind of um, 
you know the modeling and I just uh, you know not to get too gossipy but I've I've had like a very very many kind of interaction with Jesse Jenkins and you know been referred to lots of peer-reviewed um, models um, and I think there's you know real importance to modeling um, it's it's a way to predict the future but I think there's this incredible hubris that and and sort of religious faith placed in in models and you just identified one of the things that modeling may may run into in terms of community opposition in terms of kind of rates of deployment an excel spreadsheet doesn't quite model out all the variables um that that could could affect things but you know so i very much prefer to base a lot of my analysis in in sort of what's happening now the evidence we have historical obviously we need to predict the future i'm not saying models aren't important but i think i think what you're saying there is is uh is really key so we've we've kind of um We've hit the context. There's one other thing I wanted before we get into your your kind of scenarios that you looked at, um, and that's the phenomenon of um, negatively priced hours um, and subsidies. So, because um, I think this is another barrier that's coming up um, to ongoing deployment. We mentioned the sort of the easy to do stuff. I guess the first you know 10, 20 percentage of of putting renewables on the grid is is also economically easier. Um, so, so explain to us a little bit, um, and particularly to me with my kind of um, innumeracy and, and poor sense of economics, um, this concept of, of negatively priced hours and, and its consequences. Uh, well, it's a growing phenomenon, and it's largely due to intermittent energy sources like wind and solar uh, installations growing. So uh, the basic idea is that y in, in the power markets, you price electricity regarding the demand and, and supply at any given hour. And if there is more supply than demand, then the price goes down at any given price point. But then when you start to have large shares of, for, for example, wind, if you have so much wind that on a very windy day, it can by itself uh, make all of the needed power. And further, if that wind is already subsidized somewhere, so it gets paid no matter the value on the marketplace then any production above that actually becomes a waste product that you have to pay to get rid of so then you are in a situation where the wind installments get paid because they have a subsidy or fee feed-in tariff or something like that in place that they get they get paid anyway uh, then but then everything else that tries to go into the market at that point is a waste product that they actually have to pay for somebody to take that. And and the amount of these hours in the electricity grid uh, of, of Europe has been growing at an exponential curve that we have in the in, in this study. Yet the deployment of wind and solar in Europe has been growing in a linear curve for the last, uh, let's say, 10 years. So, so, so there lies the problem that at some point the exponential curve just becomes very exponential, and and you run into very serious trouble for the whole grid, because you, and 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 the thing is that for the renewables in investors, they don't see this problem because it's masked, uh, it's hidden by by the feed-in tariff or something like that. They get paid, fine, but nobody else gets paid. So nobody else will be able to make investments that the grid needs because there comes the day or week or even a month that there's very little wind and you need everything else to ramp up. But will that capacity be there and will it be enough? Will it be if they only get paid a certain amount of uh, hours in a year, it's not worthwhile for them to kind of build more capacity or keep it online and, and ready so then you run into well people come up with capacity markets so you start to pay the natural gas plant owner just for keeping the the gas plant ready to go when the wind dies down so then you're paying another subsidy because you're paying the first subsidy kind of thing you're paying because you're paying and and when you have that, that actually helps further push reliable like spaceload uh, power supply off of the market because the now the natural gas plant uh, operator can sell its product at a cheaper price because 
most of their profit or, or revenue comes from the capacity market payment you get. Wow. So they can outcompete the baseload providers, which further makes the situation worse. And yeah, it's and it's unfolding as we speak, uh, I guess, in the European energy crisis. Yeah, no, that's that's wild to hear about, you know, as, as a sort of um I won't call myself a recovering lefty because I, I still have a lot of left values. Uh, I'm just a little bit disgusted with uh, a lot of what I'm seeing around me in terms of the new left or the modern uh, uh, expressions of the left. But, um, you know, in terms of an appreciation for markets, certainly uh, a lot of uh, resistance on my part to free market fundamentalism. But I think um, this this subsidy is creating a market distortion. I think what you're saying is that... Um, Without the fit, the market would naturally say, "Okay, that's enough wind right now," um, and you know the investors wouldn't get a return, so they wouldn't build so much more. Um, so this is this is leading to a, a famous market distortion scenario. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's move a little bit more into your scenarios. Um, I just um, was uh, um, dumping on modeling, and now we're going to talk about modeling. So, <laughs> so. Um, yeah. So well, tell me about the kind of you, you mapped out a bunch of scenarios. Um, tell, tell us what those scenarios are. We're getting now into the, you know, the, the, the report itself that we all we did about half an hour of context. But let's get right into this one billion tons report, which I encourage everybody to read. And we'll give you a link um, in the show notes. Well, the thing with my models is that I, I'm not really a modeling guy. Uh, I've never studied it. And I'm, I'm more of a communicator. Uh, so when I want to find out something, I try to keep it so simple that I can explain it to anybody and that's and, and you know the saying garbage in garbage out, garbage out and and com uh, well if you put garbage into a model you get garbage out and and the further that if you have a very complex model that sounds fancy sounds fine sounds like okay th th this accounts for for example all the deployment risks that we discussed but the more you have this stuff in the model, the more complex it is, the more prone the model actually becomes to your, what you put in there, Bias, your biases, yeah. your sources, your personal stuff that you don't even realize that you have. And the even if it's peer reviewed, even if it's peer reviewed yeah, by a group the, of and, other and, modelers, yeah, I mean, do the same thing? <laughs> probably. And the thing is that probably the model works and that's enough for peer, peer review uh, because if the model works, you can publish that with these assumptions, a result happens. But the key is the assumptions. So, uh, and uh, this is a whole another big discussion, but I've been doing some, some writing about this as well, that we are having these modeling exercises, for example, 100% renewables. Uh, modeling exercise peer-reviewed st starts with these assumptions this is the cheapest way of for us to build a clean electricity grid sure and that's that's correct that can that goes through peer review but then if you then take it to the kind of press release level then it usually drops the first part of the thing with these assumptions and and it comes this study says that a hundred percent renewable way is cheaper than anything else. But but the key is that that okay, yes, it, it does say that with these assumptions, but what are the assumptions? If you assume that nuclear will cost costs will go further uh, through the roof and, and renewables and batteries and everything else comes down, obviously you're gonna get that result. Um, so tell us about your assumptions. Yeah. Yeah, you, I think you're saying you're, you kept it simple. Yeah, I kept um, it simple. Uh, our our assumption was that we tried to find out how much emissions would it save if instead of nuclear, uh, coal plants would be shut down. Because And the justification for this is that they, they play a very similar role in the energy system. They mainly produce quite stable baseload firm capacity and, and i think nuclear in germany does a fair amount of ramping up and down too, yeah right? yeah yeah it, it, it does uh, it's one of the two places in europe that uh, Fran france is, is, is yeah. another one and and contrary to common belief that's that's possible it's a licensing question mostly you license the reactor to either do base load or load following and it has certain implications for for how you operate the reactor 
so that was the, the main assumptions. And and then again, uh, when there was no more coal to be replaced, then we started to replace natural gas. That was like a very simple way to see it. And then you just changed from shutting down nuclear into shutting down coal uh, with the same amount of energy production per year. So that was the kind of, that's really simple. I, I even explained it to you and you're nodding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I over. Around. And, and we took the kind of most progressive um, energy model that we found, which we, which is the Agora Energy Vende Carbon Neutral Germany by 2050. Uh, at the time, now they have a newer one, but we didn't get those numbers in in time, which already has some some really interesting assumptions. For example, energy use will what go to less than half, one half by twenty fifty. Some 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 assuming there already. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want yeah, so. It <laughs> We're going to talk about that a little bit more because so your your pathways I think were um, you know just keeping existing nuclear around. Um, you had another pathway where you you know actually built a whole bunch more nuclear as well. Uh, let's leave that one aside for now. And then you had a, a time travel scenario where you looked at what would have happened if they hadn't done unnecessary nuclear shutdowns. But one of them was on you know an energy abundance versus kind of an energy austerity pathway. But that that brings up this question of like is there any historic not modeling precedents, but is there any historic precedence for um, a decrease in energy use like that, that doesn't just coincide with, you know, a catastrophe, a war, an economic recession? Like, you know, you hear about Jensen's paradox that, you know, increasing energy efficiency just doesn't really have a big impact because then you just find other uses for the energy. So is, is, I mean, is this just kind of like Amory Levin's fantasies or, or do we have any real examples of, of um, energy reduction on that scale? No. Not really. That's a Raleigh I mean, answer. I, I love your I love your Raleigh answers. Where it's just like <laughs> I'm going to give you a short answer. It's one syllable. No, <laughs> because the thing is that uh, you actually answered your own question there. I do that all the time, Raleigh. I've got to stop. <laughs> but now you didn't notice. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> the thing is that if you reduce energy use faster than you improve efficiency, imp- efficiency improves about. A bit less than two percent per year, I guess. So if you if you reduce it fast, reduce it faster, it means that less stuff happens in your economy, which means that your economy goes down uh, into into a recession. And and basically, you have not had nowhere near this kind of um, decreases in in energy use without having a major crisis or a, a recession or stuff like. And even then, it's it's usually just a couple of years because then the economy bounces back up with the shock gone and, and stuff like that. The amount of energy is by definition the amount of activities that people in your economy do. And the multiplier there is the efficiency in, in, in between that. So this <laughs> this implies that the German economy will shrink significantly uh, in the, in the next thirty years, and I mean, maybe the modelers were even aware of this assumption, and and the, they are like, okay, well that's fine, we are rich enough so we can become poorer. But in general, those experiments have never gone that well uh, politically and, and and geopolitically, so. I would be very careful careful in, in assuming that energy demand will fall at least not faster than efficiency is, is gaining. But even if it's the same, then your economy will be staying at the same level, which is not, not uh, something that your economy right now is designed to do. It's designed to be growing, which is another discussion uh, if that's a good thing or, or something else. But that's how it is. And if it's not doing what it's designed to do, problems start to happen. It was, you know, it was interesting, like speaking about like unintended consequences of, of degrowth, Zeon Lights wrote a piece, one of my favorite things she ever wrote um, or has written about um, her experience, you know, growing up um, in a working class, I think maybe it's Liverpool, 
um, you know, an industrial kind of heartland in the 70s and 80s, like that her parents really thrived in as new immigrants um, in a kind of social context that was pretty welcoming of immigrants, you know, one where the economy is growing and doing well and there's kind of room for everybody to thrive and how economic recession of the 80s and Thatcherism and neoliberalism, et cetera, um, and offshoring, you know, caused that economy to, to contract and deindustrialize and, and the sort of social consequences of that, which were a lot more racism and xenophobia. So, I mean, it's just, you know, again, talking about models and variables, the sort of unintended consequences that you're not thinking about, um, that just kind of, that just kind of came to my, my mind. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, particularly in the green left, are like, well, if that's good. It means we'll all work a few less days a week. We'll have a 20-hour work week. Um, and um, expensive energy isn't, isn't such a bad thing because then we'll use less of it. But particularly expensive electricity. You said something really interesting in the report about how, and this seems, when I read it, I was like, well, duh, of course. But um, what are the implications, Raleigh, a leading question here, of uh, expensive <laughs> electricity to decarbonization? I didn't answer my own question. There you go. Yeah. Well, um uh the general assumption is that we will decarbonize our economy and uh, energy use by electrifying. So moving stuff that now uses fuels into electricity and then make that electricity cleanly. Okay. And that's a fine assumption, uh, at least up to a point. There are some estimates how, how much of, of that you can actually do. It's about maybe half or 60% of energy use can be electrified but the thing is that if you make the electricity very expensive like in germany for example i mean the the power itself can be quite cheap at, at the market certainly not now but but on windy days but then you have so much fees and taxes and, and transmission costs and and whatnot is that for the consumer it becomes really expensive that means that they have no incentive of replacing their oil burner or natural gas burner with electricity because it will be much more expensive. So it does not happen. So by producing, by, by, by having high cost electricity, you are actually preventing the economy from electrifying, which then prevents it from decreasing emissions. Okay, so to the in, in our kind of final ten minutes or so to the to the scenarios and the results that yeah. we've got, I think you know the name of the report sort of says it all to a degree. Um, One billion tons. Um, to put that in context, um, as I thought Bill Gates did pretty well in his How to Avert a Climate Catastrophe book. Every year, um, humanity puts out about 50 billion tons of, of emissions. So, I mean, 1 billion tons, that doesn't sound like very much, Raleigh, but um, <laughs> that, was the, that was the consequence of, um, of uh, not shutting the, the German six, I guess, right? Mm. Um, you looked at some other measures, um, lives saved and costs and things like that. But yeah, walk us, walk us through um, a couple of these scenarios. Um, and I guess these scenarios are really kind of policy recommendations, but let's, let's jump into... We've done context, 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 yeah. which has been awesome. Um, I've I've learned I've learned a lot, but uh, yeah, let's get into the meat of the report and sort of what your findings are. Go. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, coal exit ten years earlier. So instead of twenty thirty eight or thirty nine, we get coal exit by twenty twenty eight. That's for me a, a, a nice, <laughs> nice result, and actually something that the new legislation in in Germany. Uh, is kind of proposing that they need to do. I don't know how they're going to do it without nuclear, but, but then again. <laughs> uh, similar thing with natural gas. Uh, natural gas exit uh, 10 years sooner uh, with with saving the, the six reactors. Uh, you would prevent tens of thousands of lost lives and, and millions of lost work hours from happening uh, due to air pollution so that's we, that's... we saw that in on we saw it in ontario because i mean I, I, when i was in germany i gave a little uh, little speech um at the at the rally and one of the things i said is that you know ontario and germany had the opposite sort of approach in ontario we replaced coal with nuclear um and in germany they're kind of not necessarily doing the opposite but they're keeping coal open a lot longer and one of the big um, rationales for doing that in ontario was that we saved about a thousand lives a year. Um, but interestingly to me as a doctor, um, that also translated into tens of thousands of hospitalizations were averted yep. per year. Asthma for kids and, and all that 
And it was something like 40 or 50,000 emergency department visits that were avoided. And I, I started my medical career sort of at the very early stages of the coal phase. There's still a lot of coal on the grid. And there were other things as well. We cleaned up our auto emissions and stuff. But just anecdotally, I feel like I saw a lot more asthma. Um, and so that that burden of disease is, you know, just doctor certified that that stat is, is very real and very human. And, you know, when I when I emphasize that, I actually held up your your report, your one billion tons report when I was talking to uh, Stefan Haufe, the German spokesperson uh, for the COP delegation. You know, when I mentioned those those thousands of lives saved, he said, oh, but, you know, our pollution controls are, are some of the best in the world here in Europe. We've got really good scrubbers on our, our smokestacks, but it just it it, it, it doesn't uh, doesn't seem to make an impact, even when it's, you know, in that very uh, human thing of, you know, premature deaths or kids with asthma. It, it's maddening. Indeed. Uh, talking about deaths, uh, there was this paper just came out before we published our, our stuff. So I managed to uh, implement it as, as well. Somebody did, I don't remember who it was, did a calculation, uh, social cost of, of carbon. So how many extra heat related fatalities we will have by 2100 per million ton of carbon dioxide emitted. And then I obviously I did the calculation for the 1 billion tons that, that the Germans choose to emit. And that's about a quarter of a million lives lost, mainly in the developing world, like uh, where it's hot. And that's only for heat. like That's for heat stress. Um, tropic, yeah. At, at the same time, it's almost impossible for me to kind of think about that in a, in a way. I, I cannot get any grip from it. And it also blows my mind. Like, what the hell? Uh, so yeah, um, how many lives are for, for that billion? What was it? Can you say the number again? Uh, for the 1 billion tons, it was about 250,000. Now 226,000, I guess is, is the quarter million total number by, by 2100. Obviously after that, more people will die. But yeah, this is, this is modeling again, proviso, but I mean, certainly it's a, it's a potential and, and. Yeah, we'll see kind of where we get to by 2100 in terms of degrees of warming. But yeah. things are things are getting a little spicy and hot um, yeah. in Pakistan and, and yeah, in uh, sorry, in yeah. British, and, and, British I mean, Columbia, this was Canada, just one where study, we hit but... 54 degrees, <laughs> you know, in the mountains in BC. Anyway, wow. yeah, it's wild. Well, there's the economic costs, obviously. Uh, it's quite clear that keeping nuclear open is, is if not the, then one of the uh, cheapest way to add clean electricity. So that will cost billions and billions per year uh, for the Germans. There's uh, also the emissions trading system in place. So uh, if you replace nuclear with increased gold burning, you have to buy emissions credits for that. And uh, when we wrote this, the price was about 50 euros per ton. It was last summer and now it's like 90. Wow. So when I say three, roughly 3 billion euros per year, would be saved. It's now actually roughly 5.5 billion euros per year. That's almost enough to build your reactor per year, just from the emissions trading system. This is something crazy this year, right? That gas has gotten so expensive that it it's more economically viable to burn coal and spend 90 euros per ton than the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's another market disruption that there is much more demand for emissions credits because they are forced to burn coal. In terms of this kind of uh, degrowth plan and, and the decreased energy use, I mean, it's, the Germans are a bit kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy there by creating an energy system that very likely is going to <laughs> disrupt their economy, create really high prices for themselves, drive down their ability to manufacture and shrink their economy and energy use. I mean, maybe this is the ideal policy to achieve uh, the 50% energy reduction goal. Yeah, but no, <laughs> <laughs> because the people of Germany have not been told this and they are not, they, they don't want this. And at some point, some of the politicians will realize that this is something that they can blame on, on, on the stuff that Germany will be going through. Uh, and they will take advantage of that. This will be mainly the populist ones. Uh, so this will not just be a, a nice uh, degrowth harmonizing with the nature Germany. This will be the Germany that will have a lot, 
a lot of pissed off people who are not seeing improvements in their lives, not seeing improvements in their communities, are losing their jobs, are are get pay, getting paid less and, and stuff like that. Because this is the basic this is a basic pillar of how your society works. As I explained, the amount of energy that you have. If you screw that up the economy will suffer. Obviously, the politicians will try to look for, for blame anywhere else than in their own actions, because that's already stuff that is happening in Germany. Um, but there is only up to a point that, that, that you can successfully do that. You can fool one person all his life, or, or you can fool a nation for some time, but you cannot fool everybody all the time. I frequently say that, you know, my biggest fear around climate change, at least in the short term, is is less the physical impacts, but more the sociological and political ones. Um, you know, the xenophobia, the kind of anti-immigration, anti-refugee thing, who becomes the scapegoats. But now it's it's not only the my fear around climate, but my fear on, you know, the the um, consequences of, of poor energy policies as well. And the way that those things are going to compound together in terms of politics, you know, like we, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that there's a real risk around the world for for dangerous like i'm not i'm not against populism in its entirety because i think it's good to have policies that are populist from the perspective of you know helping people improve their lives and for their wages to go up and those like that's that's kind of a populism i can get behind but there's certainly a a dangerous populism which is about scapegoating and and you know profiting off of people's anger and not necessarily directing that anger where it belongs but usually at disadvantaged people or ethnic minorities etc I mean, if you imagine this kind of situation, then what will be the social license for more climate action in, in that kind of country or in the European Union, where it kind of, it means for the people even more of the bad stuff, even more expensive energy bills, even even more uh, expensive everything, basically, because everything comes from energy. Uh, and at some point, some politician will say that, okay, screw this, uh, vote me and, and I will take this away. I will make it better. I will burn some coal. I will let you drive your cars and, and, and stuff like that. So, right. yeah. Uh, and, and there goes the climate project. And what, like to date, I mean, I guess Europe's just a very wealthy place. There's enough of a buffer, especially in places like Germany of just excessive wealth that they can, these, pop, these policies are not. The, you can ask the poorest 20% if they think that. I mean the top. I mean the polit that that's one of the key issues here is that the politicians who make the decisions they are in the top ten percent of of wealth. They don't see any of the effects of their policies in their personal lives. They can they can pay a cappuccino per day for for more expensive or organic or something like that. They don't they don't see, but they also don't see what the effect will be for for the kind of lowest 10% or 20% of the population, let alone in the developing world where this, I mean, like another level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Maybe just in closing, cause we're, we're kind of hitting the, uh, the hour mark where, uh, my producer starts to get a little angry at me if I go too far over. Um, so one of the last things that of interest in the report, many interesting things, but was this, you know, and again, it's probably politically not going to happen unless, you know, there's some visionary politics. But this idea of restarting reactors that either have already been shut down or maybe these German six, if they're mothballed, could potentially be restarted. Uh, you know, my impression is that, you know, they've they've now got a more ambitious coal phase out of 2030. I think um, you and I have some skepticism about that. But my impression is that when they close a coal plant, they're pretty likely to very carefully mothball it. Um, and my impression, and again, this may not be um, backed by reality, but I think I remember seeing like the Phillipsburg plant cooling tower getting demolished very quickly after the plant was shut down is that when they shut down a nuclear plant, it's kind of like, well, let's put a wrench in the gears so that it could never be restarted. Is that accurate or am I, am my bias is getting ahead of me here in terms of you know, because you, you do talk about is there a potential for either restarting the ex the fleet that's already been shut down, or maybe these 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 German six that you know if if the politics change, the energy crisis gets brutal, and there's a reconsideration of nuclear, 
certainly the German politicians I talked to at COP were like, no, we're going to drive a nail through the heart of this. It's done. It's over. There is no stepping back from this. But yeah, what in, in terms of you're looking at that in this report, what are your what's your sense? Well, then the nuclear industry is, is precarious in this way that it's really easy to kill and it's very hard to reborn, uh, give it a, a rebirth. Uh, so and well, we in in the report we actually assumed that none of the already closed down reactors will be restarted because uh, there might be theoretical possibilities that that some of them would. But as you said, the cooling towers getting blown, perhaps somebody went with a big drill to, uh, into the pressure vessel or or something like that. So that was just I I did a good discussion with an industry insider about this possibility and and he, he was like i wouldn't count on any of them being able to restart but the thing is even with the german six you would probably need to have some kind of maintenance um, refueling because you would have to order new fuel for example that you don't have uh, so so even in and there i calculated something like a year and a half of of break um like offline time for them before they could be restarted uh and they, they but but if you talk about the kind of uh, scenario called energy abundance instead of scarcity, uh, so there we actually did a advanced reactor program for Germany, <laughs> starting as soon as imaginable. Like if the political situation completely, for example, due to the energy crisis or or something like that, completely fil flips uh, and and enough of the state kind of political trust can be given uh, to restart the program, then maybe some reactors would be coming online in this decade, uh, like small modular reactors or, or stuff like that. And there we actually get into this kind of IPCC compliance scenario, which sees the German fleet growing four times from the 2010 levels, which is what needs to happen uh, for the 1.5 degree scenarios to have to to like roadmap to to happen? So, so we did that, and and all the other assumptions were were left the same. And and well, it means that German energy demand only drops by maybe a quarter or twenty percent by twenty fifty, instead of dropping to more than or less than half of what it was in, in 2020 uh 2020 yeah so even even i mean and, and this is the scale of things and the scale of kind of things that will happen because of past mistakes is that even if we have this kind of ridiculous sounding on the face of it right now in the current political scheme uh, a new nuclear program that starts to build as much advanced reactors in germany as possible they're still screwed, especially in the 2030s to 2040s, where these are not yet coming online, but they have already closed down uh, their nuclear power plants and, and maybe they're, uh, well, they pretty much have to close down their coal power plants by 2030 as well. So in the 30s, Germans will have not that much energy. Uh, who's going to supply them? Poland? Poland has a <laughs> big fleet of coal plants <laughs> as as well. Uh, obviously, they are trying to build nuclear, but your your neighbor Sweden just had to run their oil fired plant, I think, to to provide energy yeah. for Poland or something crazy like that. Yeah, know? Poland had an emergency, so they they agreed to start their oil oil fired. Uh, I think that's like six hundred megawatts or something like that. So it's a big one. Uh, but yeah. Uh, and it's only winter is just coming, so wow. Uh, <laughs> All right. All let's right. See. Really it's <clears throat> and, and then and then you have the case that is Belgium, which is also aiming to close down six gigawatts. So you have fourteen gigawatts of of stable, reliable, clean electricity going away in the next four years. In the midst of, of an energy crisis and yeah in the midst of an energy crisis and then they are having difficulties to building and permitting new gas power turbines in in belgium and well north stream 2 has been in, in in quite a bit of trouble it might take some time to get that online and so oh, wow interesting times i'm i'm lucky to be 
here in Finland with a fixed priced electricity deal. <laughs> so, uh, and, and reasonably isolated. I mean, we will have, be having good news. Uh, Olikiloto 3 is coming online in, in just a couple of months, um, connecting to the grid in, in February, uh, if, if, if we stay on target. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Okay, Rolly, it was uh, it was a pleasure, man. Uh, it was great meeting you in Glasgow, and fun to uh, fun to do this podcast thing with you again. Here's the report. I, I very rarely we have the video kind of portion of decouple on YouTube now, so I get to hold up a report on screen. It's kind of exciting, um, but yeah, I feel like Oprah like making a recommendation for a, a great book I read. Um, so anyway, check out the one billion tons report. Um, we will post the link um, to the digital version. Um, there's lots of really great quotes and uh really great graphs and things like that it's really really well put together um and raleigh any anything else um where can our listeners find you learn more about what you do um buy your books um etc uh well thinkatom.net is the website where i publish all of my kind of publicly available studies and reports nowadays uh, uh, i run also a blog that i well, mostly it's just for me to keep diaries from cops, uh, which I did uh, this time around as well. Just every day I, I write a piece of what happened during that day. It's called kaikenhuippu.com, so it might be a little bit hard to spell. It's originally Finnish, so so that's why the name. Um, obviously, you can search me on Amazon to find my books and, and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, feel free to shoot me an email if, if you want to ask something or comment on something or help me somehow <laughs> sounds good okay raleigh um uh, enjoy teaching your capoeira class thank you for you uh, squeezing me in before that it's all good if you enjoyed the podcast please make sure to subscribe like and review us on your podcast platform of choice until next time guys <laughs>